0: This is Tricia Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. If you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line through my website at plantspeoplelove.com. Today's guest is Stephan Al, and his book is Adapting Cities to Sea Level Rise, Green and Gray Strategies, published by Island Press in 2018. Hi, uh, hi, Stephan. Welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thank you, Tricia. My pleasure to be here.
0: Um, Can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, yeah. I'm an architect and urban designer, and I work for a large global design firm in New York City, where we design uh, very large buildings, but also uh, master plans uh, and kind of very large uh, kind of neighborhoods and districts and complexes. And at the same time, I teach urban design at Pratt Institute and Columbia University of New York, And I write books about kind of uh, big challenges that are facing our cities.
0: That sounds fascinating. Um, Now, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? You're not from New York. Where are you from?
1: Yeah, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from uh, the United States. I actually grew up in the Netherlands. And uh, what's interesting about growing up in the Netherlands, and that relates to the book, uh, "Adapting Cities to Sea Level Rise, is that you grow up with water, it's everywhere. Like cities are shaped by canals, uh, there's lots of lakes, rivers, there's the ocean. On top of that, it rains a lot, there are a lot of storms, so you're used to uh, you're, you're, you're used to growing up with water, and uh, it's it's it's, it's part of the everyday fabric. You you bike. To work, you're going to have to be stopped by an opening bridge that lets through boats that sail through the canal. Uh, I, myself, was a a sea scout sailing through the the rivers and the canals and the lake. And you become aware of the very intricate water management system that uh, the country built uh, for the sole reason to survive. There was a big flood that happened in the 50s. Uh, in which a lot of people died. And ever since, uh, there's been a nationwide uh, strategy to protect against floods. Uh, But I should really say that water management uh, dates back to the 12th century uh, when uh, so-called water boards started levying taxes to build uh, dikes even before city governments were formed. And even before city taxes were levied, these organizations, these collectives, would uh, collect taxes uh, to build uh, dikes and dunes uh, to protect against, uh, against water. So I grew up in that, uh, that context and from there I uh, was interested in studying architecture and city planning and uh, I, w- I was trained in Delft uh, where I, I, uh, I studied at the University of Technology. A very kind of engineering you know, focus to architecture, uh, and uh, yeah, we would visit uh, the locks and, and the levees and become very much aware of the technology behind this uh, this system. Now, I didn't do so much with this knowledge uh, up until recently. I became an architect. I, I worked on uh, some very large buildings. Uh, then I became a professor. Uh, I I started studying planning and their design but it wasn't until recently that I became uh, fascinated with this when I moved back to uh, New York City from Hong Kong and right before I moved back there was uh, there was in 2013 it was two weeks after standing happened which completely paralyzed uh, the city of New York for several weeks and when I was there, I was just really surprised by the fact that uh, there was so little planning done to uh, protect against, uh, you know, these extreme weather events like like Sandy. And uh, it was out of the surprise that I uh, decided to, to write this uh, book. At the same time, I think it fits into this larger trend of a growing awareness of uh, resiliency. In, in architecture and urban design. Uh, so right after Sandy in New York, Rebuild by Design happened. And the university I was teaching at, at the time, University of Pennsylvania also had a team that was part of this, uh, this effort. Uh, what Rebuild by Design is, is a kind of design approach to, uh, to water management infrastructure. So instead of building uh, dikes that could potentially uh, damage a community's relationship with the water. It's more of a design approach in which you also involve uh, the stakeholders. And this is really an approach that that's the approach I was—I sort of grew up with. Uh, it's, it, uh, it's an approach that you can see everywhere uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, so I decided to write this book and to feature all the best uh, projects that have dealt with uh, sea level rise from a kind of design and architecture uh, perspective so that it wouldn't be just infrastructure but it would be something that could potentially have a long lasting impact on the on the city so, so over a, a period of, of two years uh, I, I assembled a team of, of researchers and we looked at the best kind of solutions uh, worldwide, not just from the Netherlands, but also from other places, uh, including Asia, uh, from Latin America, um, and from uh, North America.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to say, this is uh, fascinating, especially um, I'm down here in uh, Key Largo. And of course, Miami is dealing with um, sea level rise and flooding issues um, as well. Um, so what can we uh, learn from the Netherlands that you guys are doing right uh, that we can apply here to the United States? What are, what are some strategies that we can do that you cover in your book?
1: Well, let me start with a bit of the, in that the Netherlands is a very unique case. It's a very small country, homogeneous population. Uh, it has a real planning culture, a collaborative culture in which different stakeholders come together. It spends a lot of money on water management, 1.5% of GDP is spent on water management. Uh, so what I'm trying to tell is that actually it's very, very different in the Netherlands than it is here in the US. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the, 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 uh, the culture in the Netherlands does not exist here. So to give you an example, of, of how not everything uh, can, can carry over before I go to the good example, is uh, kind of New York City. So New York City after uh, Sandy mission has studied, and it became pretty clear that to build a regional barrier uh, in the outer harbor of New York would have been a lot cheaper than to actually fortify all of the shorelines. Uh, but for political reasons, and for other reasons, this barrier wasn't built. Now, had this been in the Netherlands, you know, if you go back 60 years ago, you know, they, they built barriers. So the Delta Works, which is one of the largest infrastructure projects ever, uh, essentially is a system of, of, of barriers that protects the outer area of the Delta region of the Netherlands, uh, which is from a cost-benefit and a perspective much more efficient because you can cut up the water at the inlet uh, versus kind of protecting all of the uh, shoreline as we go into the delta. Uh, so here you already see that the, uh, that the approach doesn't quite carry over because in New York. You simply do not have the kind of agency that is in charge of uh, planning this area comprehensively, nor is there the political will to invest these very large sums of money in this type of infrastructure. Now, having said that, uh, I think there are a lot of... So on the smaller scale, I think the strategies from the Netherlands are very much applicable. So to give you an, uh, an example, in Rotterdam, there are uh, a couple of like really beautiful interventions that Merry infrastructure. For instance, uh, a water ro- reservoir with placemaking. So in, in, the, in, in Rotterdam, water really comes from every direction. It, it comes from the rivers and the floods, and it, and it comes from rain. So what do you do when there's uh, a lot of rain and all your streets get flooded? So you can build uh, a big water tank under the ground, to absorb this water but another uh, strategy is to actually build a water reservoir that's part of the public realm. Uh, It could be a plaza and when there's no rain it could be used as a basketball court for instance Uh, and then when it rains it fills up and it would be uh, a water feature where people can sit around. So it becomes more kind of experiential and, and water uh, becomes something that really kind of adds to the experience of the city. So it's not just a piece of infrastructure, but can actually uh, be used as a piece of placemaking. Then there are these multi-purpose uh, levees and the dock park is a very nice example. So it's, it's not just a levee that would hold out the water, it's actually, it's also a building. So it has uh, kind of retail inside, parking. Uh, and in a way, you could use that uh, real estate to pay for the development. Then on the roof, it's a park. So there's uh, children's playgrounds, there's community gardens. So there are many, uh, many benefits to having this piece of infrastructure just be- beyond like holding the floods out alone. And then on top of that, it's, uh, it's very much subtly graded and stepped to make for interesting places uh, because usually when you build a dike, obviously you cut off one area of the city with the other. And by having kind of a, a, a subtle slope or different types of steps, uh, it becomes uh, much more natural. So instead of cutting off a, a part of the city, you could stitch it back together uh, with the, the roof and, and the uh, places that you create on top of it. So those type of interventions, I think, are are very useful. And it so happens that there's a lot of those uh, in the Netherlands. But increasingly, we're also starting to see them in, in uh, other places, including here in New York, where after Sandy and Rebuild by Design, they commissioned uh, a few projects that tried to implement this type of philosophy here.
0: So you worked overseas. What did you learn uh, by living in Hong Kong? I see that as your case study. What did they do right? What can we learn from them?
1: So Hong Kong is a very uh, typical port city, but it's restrained in terms of land because a lot of the topography is is quite uh, extreme. There's steep slopes. So, what the city has done and 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 this is typical of, of of other port cities that it's like reclaimed land and uh the problem with reclaimed land is that it's low lying and New York here also has reclaimed land and, and you know cities like Rotterdam many cities uh have done this uh, but all these cities are are now kind of facing this big problem of uh having to uh Having to protect this land as the sea levels are increasing. So what's what's happening in Hong Kong is that there was a or there is a harbor front commission. I was part of that commission, and already I would say like ten years ago, they started thinking about this uh, this topic and see how they can protect uh, their assets. Uh, I wouldn't say that Hong Kong is kind of the the, the best Asian example out there. I would. Think that uh, Singapore is actually even um, even better because really in Singapore they 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 manage kind of new infrastructure with uh, placemaking and and creating these long lasting assets for the city. So for in a, for instance the new central business district in Singapore is built around this artificial lake, uh, the uh, the Singapore uh, Marina, the Marina Bay. And they created this lake for many reasons. First of all, it's an, a very large urban water reservoir. So it collects uh, rainwater that will then be used as a source of uh, fresh water for uh, the people of Singapore. As some of you uh, may know is, is that the um, uh, Singapore is a very small kind of nation state and it's politically dependent Uh, on its neighbors for water and food Uh, and obviously it wants to be more independent uh, and hence it's been really kind of promoting this these sustainability strategies uh, including you know building vertical farms but uh, to have more kind of local food supply but really water is a big part of that so it's been building uh, water reservoirs but not just in, in kind of kind of outlying areas, but even in the most central areas. So uh, the, uh, the, the Singapore uh, Ma- Marina Bay area is really the central business district of, uh, of Singapore. So it collected this, uh, it created this kind of artificial lake. It built all these uh, office towers and resorts and uh, residential areas around it. Uh, to make it really into a CBD, and then created kind of these walkways, uh, these parks. You've probably seen the Singapore uh, super trees, these very large trees uh, that also kind of collect rainwater uh, and help help cooling. Uh, And on top of that, that is kind of blocked by this uh, kind of barrier that also helps with flood protection. So you see how it's a kind of integrated approach that builds infrastructure. In this case, to control for flooding and storms, to collect water that could serve the city. But at the same time, it's a case of placemaking. You're created this big water asset, um, and we all know that real estate is more expensive when you have a view of water, and that people naturally like to be uh, around kind of beautiful water areas. Uh, and this has become a real kind of focus point of the uh, city of uh, of Singapore. So it's a real asset, uh, and I think it's a great example of you know what, what we can do when we marry infrastructure with with placemaking um, and create these hybrid solutions to promote uh, or to kind of make our cities more resilient. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy
0: price, price line. Yes, I like that. And you know, I'd like to uh, ask that same question about New Orleans. I grew up in the Florida panhandle and I've been to New Orleans many times. And um, I saw the effects of Katrina and how our Floods and dikes over there uh, failed uh can you talk more about uh, why you included New Orleans um, in this book?
1: Yeah, I think New Orleans was probably the first in the United States to be hit by such a big disaster and have this uh, kind of response uh, that was a very kind of typical uh, response of building kind of uh, levees and it was um, I think you know a very impressive effort in the very short amount of time this was executed by the army corps of engineers but at the same time i feel that it's also a uh, and i think there were kind of kind of good lessons from new orleans in in terms of how uh the city thought of kind of resilience beyond just uh flood protection but also um kind of other other aspects and, and using this to promote community development and improve equity. But at the same time, I feel that it's somewhat emblematic of a more traditional kind of hard protect approach in which we just use infrastructure to solve for the problem of flooding. And I think sometimes uh, this can really create uh, possibly more harm than good uh, because it can really kind of cut off a community uh, from uh, uh, what is often its livelihood like the the water and uh, you have these very high dikes and you can see children behind the dikes kind of wondering what's on the other side of the dike uh, because um, you know there's, there's simply nothing they can see besides this this wall so I thought it was important to include and i uh, I think it's a good example because it's at least you know, a lot of dikes and barriers were built. On the other hand, uh, if they would have uh, taken more time and if they would have involved kind of the the local stakeholders, they probably would have come up with a plan that uh, would have been kind of better integrated uh, and and would have made uh, the city of New Orleans even more resilient.
0: So, yes, I've noticed that, you know, um, including people – in the process helps them to appreciate um, the work that you're doing for uh, flood and sea level rise management. No?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is a kind of very different approach than, than typical, right? Like typically the army army Corps of Engineers would come in and the engineers would kind of look at the problem and they would kind of specify, they would run their calculations and they would specify a a dike or a wall with a certain height and thickness and slope and and the dike will get built but once you kind of uh, include other stakeholders uh, you can really have a lot of uh, benefits first of all if you you know it's 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 really a complex uh, problem right because you you think about the the problem of climate change in the United States it's it's not just a problem for city planners or engineers uh, obviously it's a it's a problem of the the people who own the land like the landowners the individual homeowners it's a problem for the insurance companies that have to underwrite kind of flood risks and 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 policies uh it's uh, an uh, and and this is also a big problem for the people who actually live there and, and may not even own uh, you know some of the properties over there. Uh, then, obviously, environmental groups should be involved because a lot of this infrastructure has a big impact on uh, kind of the environmental conditions. Can really kind of disrupt the uh, ecological system. So, I think the the solution becomes a lot more robust when all these different stakeholders are involved. So that's the first. Part of the equation, and the second part of the equation is that this is a problem that really needs many, many disciplines—not just kind of engineering. It should also include, you know, ecologists and hydrologists and uh, real estate um, people. It should include designers, uh, and uh, that's why I think the traditional approach, although it may may solve the problem in the short term, and the long term, I think. Uh, there, there are much better solutions out there. Now this all sounds great, but in reality, obviously this is very hard to do, especially when you don't have that kind of culture of collaborative water management or even kind of interdisciplinary uh, work. So I think it's, it's really tough. In the United States, there's not really kind of this inter-agency uh, that is in charge of managing these uh, uh, kind of the water across you know many many uh, municipalities, but water doesn't really uh, correspond to to borders, right? Institutional borders. It it really kind of follows a gravity uh, system, and uh, it's it it doesn't doesn't quite uh, fit neatly into these uh, kind of very often fragmented institutional uh, governments that underlie a city. Like look at Miami, for instance. You have uh, Miami-Dade County, there's the city of Miami, the city of Miami Beach, you have, uh, Broward County. So all these are different institutions that don't typically uh, work, work together to come up with a solution. So you need some sort of a large kind of regional or inter-regional agency that deals with this. And uh, So it's, it's, it's really not just an engineering or design problem. It's really also a, a policy problem. How do you get all these agencies to work together? what sort of vehicle do you need, and also how do you fund this vehicle so it's a it's a very complex problem, and that's why i I said that the kind of the the netherlands case, which is really a nationwide uh, water management plan plan, cannot really be uh, copied but it's an interesting plan to study so if you if you look at the plan in the Netherlands uh, after this kind of big disaster in the 50s, what the government started to do, they started to uh, make this kind of nationwide plan in which they allocated different risk levels depending on the assets in the areas and the people that live in the areas. So I'm from this small town and there's not a lot of people that, that live there, and there's also not a lot of uh, big. of assets or it's not a real center of the economy so the the level of risk there uh, that is assigned by the government is a little uh, higher than it is for instance in a place like amsterdam or rotterdam or the airport Uh, and they put a number to that so the the annual risk of flooding in the town where i'm from is one to 1000 whereas in uh, rotterdam which is actually lower and closer to the coast in my town, it's it's 1 to 10,000. So you see how you can have a sort of scientific approach to this, and you can calculate the probability of a breach by investigating your infrastructure. You can look at all the assets at risk by doing economic analysis, uh, relying on census data, uh, and then you can assign as a government uh, the adequate level of risk to, to protect that area, because obviously it's an economic equation. It's a, it's a money thing, right? You're going to spend the money where you think you have the most amount of money uh, at, at, at risk uh, in terms of a flood. So this approach, which is uh, a nationwide approach, obviously could not work in the United States simply because uh, it's institutionally uh, too, too fragmented. It's very kind of diverse uh, population and also uh, very different from the Netherlands. There's a lot of people in the United States that do not live near the coast or, or a large water body, right? Whereas in the Netherlands, everyone is affected. So it's much easier to rally people around a uh, big cause like that and to have this uh, national strategy, whereas in the United States, uh, this, this is not the case.
0: Um, yeah, just for our readers, who are talking about page twenty one about um, yeah, that's true. The United States is um, when I visit Europe, I'm surprised at how small it is, and I come back to the United States and I go, well, "This is really huge." Um, and you're uh, talking about you know the different disciplines and how we need to start thinking about you know the old fashioned design charrette or uh, a charrette agency to bring together architects, landscape architects, you list urban environmental. Uh, and engineering into one place and a, a government agency to kind of bring people together to solve these problems because it still affects a lot of people in New York, Miami and all of our coastal areas
1: mm-hmm. yeah so the, I think the charrette is a good t- good tool it also comes with a risk but yeah the charrette is you know it comes originally from the Beaux-Arts and, and charrette means a uh, cart uh, in, in, in French and it refers to the carts that uh, that were driven around the school of architecture when uh, when students were doing their exam, and when they finished their drawings, they would have to put that in the cart, so it kind of more broadly refers to a very intense period of design uh, and and this kind of intensity of design experience can lead to kind of great accomplishments and and this is what uh, kind of the new meaning of charette. Is referring uh, f- referring to it's, it's typically half day or day or multi day uh, kind of event in which different uh, different stakeholders come together and and work together on a on a solution. Now I think that's that's really good, and you bring all these people together and you start the conversation. At the same time, there is a risk, uh, and I think you know one of these risks. Is, is something that we're seeing here in in New York is that you can come up with these great solutions, but then you still need to implement them. And, and I think there's some sort of a uh, kind of resilience fatigue happen happening with some communities that you know attend those charrettes. They become hopeful, and then when you when you see the result, uh, you know many years later. Uh, it's 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 it, it. It may not be what those communities imagine, and there's kind of this fatigue. Uh, could could also back backfire. So that's why I think you know these charrettes are great, but you really need to have this kind of larger structural kind of institutional support to implement this in a um, in a more kind of sustainable sustainable way. But nevertheless, it's it's very promising, and, it, and it's obviously much better than not doing it at all and, and just having uh, a bunch of engineers kind of specify the dikes uh, and sit together with some city planners and ultimately have the mayor or the government uh, decide. Uh, and you know, at least involving the communities will make the people who eventually design these places be aware of the local concerns Integrate some of the local knowledge. See if there's any opportunities to to specify these dikes in such a way that they can 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 become more than just infrastructure and actually really transform uh, a city for the better.
0: Yes, that's true. I agree. Uh, yeah, you come up with all these ideas, and um, there's no we have no real government. Uh, interdisciplinary uh group to actually like make it work and and make it happen and uh it's the implementation part that uh we kind of we kind of get lost on over here
1: yeah so i think it's 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 really i mean some some people say that uh, it takes two disasters not one to change uh to change the mindset uh and what's happened in the united states is these disasters happened but they happened in other in uh, different regions right so we had harvey devastate houston but that's very far from new york right uh, we had katrina in new orleans we we had um, sandy in new york but they're all pretty pretty far from from each other and perhaps you need two disasters in in the one area to really make a Significant kind of impact and really change change the mindset. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm I also worry about this and I look at kind of climate change really impacting cities, not just in terms of water, but also in terms of uh, temperature and heating and droughts and forest fires. And obviously, we can use design to make these places more resilient. But what we're already seeing is that for some people. Uh, they can no longer afford to live in these areas because, uh, you know, flood insurance may be prohibitively expensive, uh, leading to an era of uh, of climate refugees, which we're seeing already in in places like new, new Orleans, when three a thousand people didn't move back after Katrina but chose to live somewhere else simply because they they couldn't afford to rebuild or to um to to pay the new in uh, insurance. So I think this is also a reality, and it's also a kind of a, it. It could be a deliberate strategy of some some cities or areas to to simply uh, not invest in infrastructure and to retreat, but to retreat strategically. So this is another kind of common strategy: the strategic strategic retreat. To to move the assets away from the risk, which is ultimately the most sustainable solution, because you can build all the dikes you want, eventually uh, they will succumb to the to the to the sea. Uh, so the most sustainable solution is simply to move to uh, to higher grounds. Um, why
0: would jump to another thing you were talking about in your book. Um, I studied, um, landscape architecture and, um, what about habitats? Can people and, uh, habitats and living shorelines, can we coexist?
1: Yeah, no, I, I think this is a really promising approach and I think landscape architecture as a field, um, is so rich and it's really becoming embedded with urban design and architecture and, i th- I think we we should be really uh thankful for kind of landscape architecture going beyond the boundaries of garden design uh to really uh be kind of fully integrated into the built environment because ultimately uh this is important for our kind of the s- sustainability of the cities of our cities because nature has uh, uh as as Ian McCark in his book design with nature <laughs> has written about nature has um, a lot of capabilities uh, that could benefit us it can purify water through natural processes it can build uh, flood protection through 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 dunes simply by using a grass that would kind of stabilize the, the, the shore uh, so so nature is really uh, key and in integrating with nature so, even with the, the recent heating, you know, we could build more vegetation in cities to create more temperate uh, environments, reduce the urban heat island effects for storms. We can have um, areas that absorb uh, water with, with with parks and bioswales uh, instead of just letting our gray infrastructure deal with that through, through pipes. So there's really a lot of benefits from... Uh, from using nature and, and landscape architecture thankfully is, has, uh, has played such a large role in, um, in doing these type of projects. Uh, but there's only kind of, when, when we're looking at very dense environments and the inner core of cities, there's only so much nature can do because it tends to take up more space. So, for instance, here uh, in, in New York City, uh, it will be very hard to implement uh, a system of dunes uh or to have these kind of very large uh, parks as as stormwater uh reservoirs uh, because uh very often these natural systems they don't always play well with human human use so for instance, the dunes uh the kind of natural form of uh, of, of using uh sand and and grass and vegetation to Keep out the the water. Uh, they're very sub vulnerable to to human use. So trampling the the dune grass that's so strong in keeping the dune together is uh, is tolerant to many things, including uh, glare and 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 salt. But it's not to to trampling. So you cannot really walk uh, on the dunes. So you need to have this kind of elevated system of walkways, uh, and it just simply takes up. Uh, a lot of space. So so while these systems are very good uh, in very dense environments, we may need like all gray solutions or hybrid solutions. And I think that's also one thing to think about is it doesn't need to be either gray or green uh, pipes and, and walls or, or sand and trees. I think they're, the, the most promising solutions are really uh, this, this hybrid of using grain green strategies uh, together. So having a dike with a wall, for instance, on one hand, but also have an area in front of it that is a kind of green strategy with with sands and with with vegetation to help to reduce the impact of the the waves as we protect our shorelines. So I think, it's not mutually exclusive, and I think that the the best solutions really uh, combine the two. But obviously, when there's a possibility, uh, there should be uh, kind of a full use of, of, of green solutions, of natural uh, solutions. Uh, so that's why there's this saying that you know we should we should do green when it's possible, but uh, we should use gray whenever it's necessary.
0: Uh, yeah, and for our audience, um, since this is a podcast, I want to tell them that you know, they beautifully designed uh, this book. And I love how you have your strategies, performance pros, and design goals and and, and cons. Um, can you talk a little bit more about um, some of your hard protects, uh, your different types of strategies that you outline here? You've got a multi-purpose dike, for instance, um, and motorways. And how can, even though we have a fragmented system, how can we start uh, like taking some of these design ideas from the charrettes and uh, strategies and really like put together a cohesive plan for somebody to implement in one of our cities.
1: Well, I think the, the word you use here cohesive is really key uh, because you could protect one area of the shore. uh, But then what that means is that it will simply divert water away to another area. So I think a piecemeal solution doesn't quite work, right? You need to have this regional strategy first uh, in in which you make sure that, uh, you know, all the pieces work well together. So I think that's the first step. It's like for uh, kind of a regional approach to this problem in which uh, kind of the vulnerabilities are mapped out, the key assets are mapped out, you know, what is the key infrastructure that we would need to uh, protect the hospitals, the police centers, the the, uh, the the medical facilities, the power plants, the the kind of water uh, purification plants, the food supplies. What are all these key uh, facilities? You know, how can we make sure that there are people who live there and when there's a flood, they can flee on high ground. So we need some sort of an interconnected Kind of elevated system, so people can can uh, can be safe when there's there's something. So all of this needs to kind of be looked at at a regional level. But then, when you look at uh, local uh, conditions, there's a lot of different approaches. So, l- like we talked about, we can we can have a, a green solution for one area when there's a lot of space to you know build a build a dune or to have this kind of uh, park as a, as a water reservoir or a living shoreline. But when there's not a lot of space, uh, it could be more of a green-gray hybrid solution or it, it could become a, a green solution. But even the gray solutions, uh, the hard infrastructure solutions, I think uh, there are really good examples of, uh, of, of, of uh, gray systems that actually uh, kind of benefit the city. So the Vancouver seawall, uh, for instance, which is a, a seawall that kind of meanders around most of uh, Vancouver. It's the longest uh, seawall, but it's also um, a very beautiful walk where people can walk around. There's all these interesting places that occur, uh, benches, viewing points, there's trees. So so even this kind of hard piece of infrastructure can become an asset that makes the city of Vancouver um, a lot more beautiful. Uh, the multi-purpose levee, right? So we can build a levee, but we can also use it as a building, right? or we can put a road underneath it. We can put parking uh, inside. We can put retail uh, inside. We can use the roof as a as a park or as as, as gardens, as uh, playgrounds, uh, or we can use the roof as a uh, as a road uh, or bike lanes or or it's it and, and very often the the rules of levies uh, become this kind of interconnected uh, system uh, that can help people flee in case of a, of a flood so even the gray solutions when properly designed and when when looking at the kind of local opportunities that exist to either uh, you know create great places or to um, Team it up with kind of real estate in order to kind of cross subsidize the infrastructure. Uh, even these gray solutions can become real assets to the city, like we we see in uh, in places like Vancouver, but also Rotterdam, which has a lot of the multi purpose levies like the the Dock Park we talked about earlier.
0: Yeah, and um, you've got so many uh, great ideas. I, I really uh, appreciate the time and energy and effort that you put into all this research. Um, and how you brought it all together. Um, so uh, Stefan, I know we've, we've taken up a lot of your time today and and I, I really appreciate you you being here and talking about all this. Um, can you tell our audience uh, what exciting projects are you working on now?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're working um, at the office at a lot of large big scale projects uh, all over the world, including uh, New York, but I've been working on a, a few projects in Asia. Uh, including a very large uh, tech district for a major uh, technology client that's uh, that's around a kind of shore, so resilience is a big component of it. But also other aspects like new uh, forms of mobility, automated vehicles, and so we're spending a lot of time in the office, uh, also thinking about new new forms of mobility and how they may impact cities. Resilience. Continues to be a big focus area, and a lot of our clients are very uh, concerned about this. They want to climate proof their their buildings. Here in New York, obviously, uh, with the recent passing of the new kind of uh, building energy uh, laws, we're going to see the most stringent kind of uh, building energy codes in the in the world, and a lot of the buildings will have to be adapted to. Uh, uh, to conform to these codes, and, and obviously this is a very good thing for the uh, the environment. Less energy will will have to be used for heating and cooling our buildings, and all of this will will be good. But it's also a big uh, big challenge ahead. And if you think about the recent heat wave in Europe, for instance, and, uh, and even in the Netherlands, it's not that that hot, but you get kind of Las Vegas or Dubai like temperatures. Uh, with this new kind of climatic shift in a a city like London, which suddenly has the, uh, or maybe 10, 20, 30 years from now, we'll have the climate of a uh, kind of Southern European city like Barcelona. We really need to think about resilience uh, from also the energy and the uh, kind of building envelope side. So how can we create buildings now that may also be Kind of environmentally useful and 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 have a life thirty years from now when there may be a completely different climate climatic uh, situation. So so these are all very big challenges that we are we are facing. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think for for the designers and the city planners out there and the landscape architects, uh, kind of resilience is is really becoming part of kind of the everyday. Uh, work life, and it's becoming something that we have to think about uh, every every time we sit down and we, we design something.
0: We don't actually, I'm going to sneak in another question that I just had. So in your teaching classes, how are you preparing your students uh, to take on these challenges when they go out into the real world to all these firms?
1: Yeah, I think there's three things really that I, I try to um, – teach, and, and they're all quite different from the traditional design approach. And and uh, the first is about dealing with uncertainty. You know, we, the, the future is really increasingly a moving target. We don't really know how much uh, kind of sea level rise we're going to get 10, 20, 30 years from now. But However, the, the projects that we build for Hopefully, they're going to have a shelf life of 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 thirty years or at least more. Uh, So, this kind of uncertainty is 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 something that is uh, something that we can actually design for, right? So, we can design uh, a plaza for multiple uh, scenarios, multiple levels uh, of sea level rise, uh, for instance. Um, So, it's, it's 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 not coming up with a single solution, but it's 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 coming up with kind of uh, a solution that could uh, perform well in different types of scenarios. So it's designing around these different types of scenarios instead of this kind of single future. That's the first. And the second is the kind of interdisciplinary approach. So what's nice about a field like urban design, also architecture that you're always forced to work with other Disciplines like uh, engineers, etc. But with climate being uh, a larger kind of pressure on uh, our designs, this is only increasingly so. So a lot of the knowledge we simply don't have uh, when it comes to protecting our, our shorelines uh, as a traditional architect or urban designer. Uh, we may not know everything about uh, kind of uh, water water management, but when you're dealing with a problem uh, that's about water, then the water should come first so it's really this interdisciplinary approach um, and reaching out to other uh, types of uh, consultants and uh, hydrologists and uh, and water management uh, specialists uh, in which we can create kind of new uh, interdisciplinary solutions and the final is like uh, a collaborative approach we tend to think of the architect as the urban designer as this kind of genius that sits up in his uh, attic by himself sketching uh, with this uh, in this kind of isolated condition but really the best uh, solutions come when uh, when kind of local communities get involved and in the studios that I have taught uh, we always try to have this community element. So for instance, we did a studio in Miami uh, and we involved uh, not only the the local governments like Miami-Dade, the city of Miami, the city of Miami Beach, but also local stakeholders, local developers, uh, local community groups. And we we helped this kind of one-day charrette. And I think the students really benefited from getting their perspective and it completely informed and changed um, a lot of their initial assumptions. And at the end of the day, it made the projects a lot more robust.
0: Oh, that's lovely. I love to hear that. Um, well, again, I'm going to tell everybody this book is Adapting Cities to Sea Level Rise by Stefan Al, Gray and Green Strategies, published by Island Press in 2018. Thank you so much for being here.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much, Tricia.
0: Thank you so much for listening today. Uh, This is Tricia from sunny Key Largo, Florida. And again, if you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line through my website at plantspeoplelove.com.